Happy Father's Day. How's it going? I want to echo the words of Pastor Dave. It's not always a positive day for everybody, is it, Father's Day? Sometimes it evokes all sorts of negative emotion. And let's just sit for a second in uh, support of each other for, for a moment. You know, there are people who are estranged from parents. I'm just going to get our team to bring my stuff up if I could, which is that thing, that thing, and that other thing. <laughs> um, sometimes, you know, we're estranged from parents. Sometimes parents are estranged from children. Thank you so much, Peter. This is why you're my favourite. Um, there, sometimes there's been bereavements or family distance. Sometimes we just, you know, in a place like Alice Springs, so many of us are away from our nuclear family and there's all sorts of challenges that we face and so days like today they really can they can evoke a little bit of pain Father's Day evokes a fair degree of ambivalence in my life essentially because I haven't really had a great relationship with my dad our family was very fractured very violent place and uh, it's the church that I learnt what a healthy man was 20 years ago when I said yes to the gospel and joined the church it's the church that showed me how to be a dad it's, they showed me how to be a dad predominantly by fathering me, an unfathered boy who had bad attitudes and all sorts of problems and addictions. And after 20 years of walking with the church, I praise God for the men in this church and in the other one that I was part of in Brisbane before we moved here, where people who poured themselves into my lives, man, if I didn't have that, all I'd have on Father's Day is a void for that feeling of what is a father. But I have a father in God, and you do. And I have fathers in this church and in the church I came from, spiritual dads, spiritual mums and dads. And uh, I pray, man, if, if, if Father's Day evokes any ambivalence in you, maybe because of your situation or your history or your biography or your pain, I pray today just for a second, let's just sit in the grace of God together, shall we? And uh, particularly for those who are not having a great time every Father's Day. Maybe you miss someone. Maybe there's grief in your heart from a bereavement or a division or a, a wound. Then I pray God's special grace. Would I be able to pray for you this morning? If you're watching online, you accept this prayer as well. Come on, why don't we bow our heads all over this place? Let's just sit in God's grace today. Our Father, I thank you for each and every person under the sound of my voice this morning. You know, the worst thing we can do is come to church and come together as God's people and pretend like everything's okay and play happy families like there's no problem and live in denial like some mentally ill group or cult. But Father, what we do today is we do what your word constantly does, and that is... We look the brokenness of the world squarely in the eye and we say there is pain, there is failure, there is distance, there is brokenness, there's sin, there's rebellion. And Lord, that has touched so many of us in our lives and in our hearts in this room today. So I pray for every man, every woman, every child under the sound of my voice this morning. I pray that you would cover their life with your grace. I pray where there's pain, Lord, that you would come in the comforting power of the Holy Spirit that you would come alongside as that great comforter that Jesus said, little children, I won't leave you as orphans, but I will ask the Father and he will send another comforter. Pray, Holy Spirit, you would hover over people's hearts and minds today. Lord, I pray that you would breathe into people's emptiness, that you would put fire where people feel dead, that you would resurrect life where people feel passionless and emotionless. Lord, I pray today as we join together, as we sit under your word for this few remaining moments, as we've prayed and worshipped, I pray today just those bits of us that need healing would leave this place more healed than they were when we came in, in Jesus' name. Where there's darkness and shadow inside us, let your light shine, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I really mean I honour the men in this place who do such a great job 
standing alongside us and families, standing alongside us in ministry, standing alongside us in community all throughout this town and the men in the room today who are over 18 years of age. Let me give you a subset of the fantastic specimens in our community. I want you to stand on your feet. If you're a man in the room, you're over 18, I want you to stand up. We know there's men under 18, but we're talking about the grown-ups today, just for a second, just for a second. And I have a look at these smashing individuals that really, and as I'm looking around the room, I just see people who at every level pour into community, pour into family, pour into workplaces and hobbies and schools and all sorts of things, fathers and uncles and brothers and mates and, and community members as well. And we're richer for you guys. We're richer for your presence. We're richer because you're in our world. We're richer because you're in our town. We're richer because you overlook my grammatical errors. We're more rich because you're in our lives. And uh, it'd be our joy to, first of all, honour you this morning. If you're remaining seated, why don't you honour every one of these men that's in this room, hey? Just say, well done. Well done for being amazing. Well done for pouring into us. Thank you. Well done for standing beside us. And we know you're not perfect and you're not here pretending you're perfect either. Thank you. And uh, it'd be our joy this morning to also pray for you. So if you've got a bloke standing up nearby or seated nearby, then why don't you uh, stretch a hand out towards them and we're going to pray for the men that are in our community this morning, those who are with us in this room. Father, thank you. Thank you. In men, you've given the world a tremendous gift, and that's one of the things we celebrate in this space. In this church today, we celebrate the gift you've given. Each one of these men is a gift to us. They're a gift to their families. They're a gift to this cosmos, and they're a gift to everything they, they do. They're, wherever they go, they turn up as a gift that you have placed there for good purpose. So we pray for them, God, that you breathe into it, anoint it, and cover them with your grace, that everything they do would be an expression of your power and love and goodness coming through them, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. One more time, tell these blokes we love them. You are awesome. We haven't got much time together, but what I want to do this morning is I want to have a chat to the men in the room. I want to have a chat to you, whether you're watching online, whether you're here on site. I want to have a chat to you. Now, women, we're going to need your help because we need you to listen into this conversation. It's not that you're excluded. You're kind of included. But what I want to do today being Father's Day, I want to talk to men about being men. I want you women to listen in because the truth is God has designed this universe to flourish only when Adam and Eve partner together. That is that God has made a plan and a purpose that men and women would live together in God's image and that together they would multiply and subdue and fill God's good world and achieve God's good plans. So girls, you're just as much partners in this conversation today, even though I'm going to spend a substantial amount of time talking about being a bloke, which I am, and talking about being blokes, which there's many of them in the room this morning, okay? Maybe on Mother's Day or one of those other days, we'd have a conversation about women along the same terms and the blokes get to partner with us in that chat and listen in. But today, indulge me for a second. I want to talk to you about what it is to be a man, because it's a tremendous challenge in this day and age to think about and talk about this thing called masculinity, this thing called being a man. Robert Louis Moore was an American therapist, psychoanalyst, and a private practice consultant in Chicago, Illinois, one of the world's most successful at counselling men through the very deep problems they encounter. He was a psychoanalyst. He was the Distinguished Service Professor of Psychology, Psychoanalysis and Spirituality at the Chicago Theological Seminary. That's a mouthful, isn't it? What am I doing with my life, he says. 
He's written powerfully about the experience of masculinity, and I think it bears quoting some of his sentences at length. He says, we have a problem in the modern age because we don't properly any longer show men how to be men, leaving them up to their own devices to figure it out, which has um, issues for good or for ill. The reasons are complex of why it's challenging to be a bloke in today's day and age. Let me read you what he says. He says this in traditional societies, there is standard definition of what makes up what we call boy psychology and man psychology. Traditional societies used to use a ritual transition to help boys learn and pass from boy psychology into man psychology. Boy psychology is everywhere around us, he says. And its marks are easy to see. Among them are abusive and violent, acting out behaviours against others, both men and women. Passivity and weakness, the inability to act effectively and creatively in one's own life and to engender life and creativity in others, both men and women around us. And often in boy psychology, there's an oscillation between two things, abuse and weakness, abuse and weakness. Boy psychology, says Dr. Moore, is charged with the struggle for dominance over others in some form or another and is often caught up in the wounding of self as well as the wounding of others. It is sadomasochistic. Man psychology is always the opposite. It is nurturing. It is generative. That means it brings good things alive in God's good world. And it is never wounding or destructive. Think about that, the difference between man's psychology and boy's psychology. It is our experience, says Dr. Moore, that deep within every man are blueprints, what we would call hardwiring for the calm and positive mature masculine. And in our years of clinical practice, we have become increasingly aware that something vital is missing in the inner lives of many men who seek therapy. What was missing is an adequate connection to the deep and instinctual masculine energies and the potentials of mature masculinity. What is missing is connection to those things. In the present crisis in masculinity, we do not need, as some feminists are saying, less masculine power. We need more. We need more of the mature masculine. We need more man psychology. We hear it often said of some man, he just can't get himself together. What this means is on a deep level is that so-and-so is not experiencing and cannot experience his deep cohesive structures. He is fragmented and various parts of his personality are split off from each other and leading fairly independent and chaotic lives. A man who can't get it together is a man who has probably not had opportunity to be initiated into the deep structures of manhood, the deep structures of manhood. He remains a boy, not because he wants to, but because no one has shown him the way to transform his boy energies into man energies. I think, by the way, every man in this room knows exactly what he's saying. The drug dealer, the ducking and diving political leader, the wife beater, the chronically crabby boss, the hotshot junior executive, the unfaithful husband, the company yes man, the indifferent graduate school advisor, the holier than thou pastor, the gang member, the father who can never uh, find time to attend his children's programs, the coach who ridicules his star athletes, the therapist who unconsciously attacks his clients, those who seek a grey normalcy for those around them. All of these men have something in common. They are boys pretending to be men. 
They got that way, honestly, because nobody showed them what a mature man is like. Their kind of manhood is a pretense to manhood that goes largely undetected as such by most of us. And we are continually mistaking a man's controlling, threatening and hostile behaviours for so-called masculine strength. In reality, it is actually an underlying extreme vulnerability and weakness, the vulnerability of the wounded boy. It's a powerful set of statements, isn't it? This wrestle that each one of us has to engage, each one of us has to go through. The transition, the calling, having a vision and then successfully pursuing and living into that vision, changing from boy psychology to man psychology. Listen, brothers, you're a male by virtue of biological fact, but you will only ever be a man through a lifetime's pursuit and growth. Something that challenges each of us. Listen to this, stage, this saying, deep within every man, he says, are blueprints, what we can also call hardwiring for the calm and positive, mature, masculine. He gives us a challenge. The challenge is to replace boy psychology with man psychology. Learning to tap into, to empower, to release, and to live into the blueprints and hardwiring of a mature grown and strong man. Well, that is a challenge, isn't it? You know, the Bible always invites us into this journey. The Bible always invites us into this journey to become not a boy man, not a perpetual man child, but actually a type of man that in shorthand in scripture is termed the wise man. We're called to put away the boy and to become a man. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. When I was a child, I talked as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood. I put the ways of childhood behind me. And that word put behind me is the Greek word katageo, which means to, to, to cut off, to, to, to absolve, to discharge, to make idle, to, to, to sever and separate from. And what Paul's really saying is this is what the journey is that we're called to in the gospel, is we're called to sever and to put away the ways of the boy and to grow into a man. Solomon, who will feature later in today's discussion, said it this way in Proverbs, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behaviour, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, letting the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. We're always growing. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. That's what scripture brings us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're given this choice. Will I be foolish and young and simple and undeveloped or will I be the wise? Will I answer the call to be the wise man? Here's the journey from the boy to the man to the wise man. That's the quest that we're called to and the quest that we are invited on. Let me ask you a question. I want you to picture something in your mind. What's a real man? Be a man, they say. Be a real man. Oh, oh it's for real men. Okay. Picture a real man for me. 
I did ask my wife during the week about this and, and she lied through her front teeth and went, you baby. <laughs> if your husband asks, just lie to him, make him feel good. Often when we are asked this question, sociologically or individually, and I, before I was a pastor, I used to be a youth and young adult worker, and before I was working in the church, I worked as an adolescentologist in high schools and the education department. And as we studied young people, what we found is that, 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 that young people are just younger, older people. And that whether they're young people or older people, when asked questions like, what is a real man, they answer with something negative, which we call a stereotype, rather than with something healthy. And our society is filled with stereotypes because these days, marketing or culture supply an answer to us. They imprint upon our hearts and minds, imprint even upon our intuition, an answer to the question, what is a real man? And therefore, we have a vision in our mind, but it may not even be a healthy one. And actually, there are some common themes. Here, here's one grouping. Hollywood has given us the stereotype in the image of the stunted man. You see this in TV shows like Seinfeld. If you're young, you probably haven't seen any of that stuff. But you see this in Seinfeld where we've got these boy men in their 30s still acting like little boys with Elaine running around being their mummy the whole show. Stunted, not living into male strength, not living into masculine strength, not setting a good example. Stunted boy men acting like frat brothers perpetually. Adam Sandler has made an entire career. Fortunately for him, he's got rich off the idea. But have a look at his movies. The movies propagate a stereotype, the stereotype of the stunted man-child. Almost every one of his films has the same motif and the same thing going on, which Hollywood is selling us is this is what men are, typical male. What is it? The little boy that refuses to grow up. It's a retelling of the Peter Pan narrative. But of course, there's others. Here's another uh, little collection. Maybe when you think about a real man, you think about, you know, the world's most influential podcasters in the masculinity space. Yeah, man, they're alpha male. They're testosterone hunting and killing and jujitsu. All the things I like. But anyway, that's not my stereotypes of masculinity. Marketing or culture will try to sell you on the rock and say what's going to happen is you're going to go out there and get your tats and, and beef up and get pecs of steel and, and, and if you can't, you're really going to wish your hood and you're, going to, and you're going to compare yourself against that image. See, And that stereotype is still providing a vision for you to live into. And marketing companies know it because when they tell you when they want you to buy cigarettes or cars or any other gadget or gizmo, they don't tell you all about their product. What they do is they sell you a stereotype. The cowboy in freedom rides across the plains. Look at him, manly and tough, smelling like leather and horses, smelling like hay with his cowboy hat on and his cowboy chaps. That's a whole different other possible stereotypes out of that outfit. But anyway, but here it is. We'll show you this real man. And then, by the way, we'll flash up the cigarettes. How do you get the adventure and the craving that you're after? Smoke our smoke. See what happens? A stereotype is downloaded onto our hard drive as a way to pull out all of our yearnings and our longings and our desires and then sell us back a product. Culture knows that by propagating stereotypes, people make money off us. Pornography does it. Consumerism does it. Sadly, even in the church, stereotypes feature more often in conversations about masculinity or indeed femininity than we would like to admit. Who's ever heard this statement? We've got to get back to the real biblical meaning of manhood. We've got to get back to, to the biblical definition of womanhood. You know, most of the time when people say that, what they're really offering you is a cultural stereotype and scripture becomes the filter through which they justify that stereotype. We're guilty of that quite often. 
a stereotype. Now, stereotypes have some problems, this thing. Oh, it's a typical male, oh, typical female, typical young person, typical Aussie, typical American, typical Asian. Okay, there's stereotypes. And here's the thing, who, who likes being stereotyped? Stereotypes are problematic because, one, they're often negative. And that is, you very rarely heard a stereotype used in the positive. Do something nice for someone, oh, typical bloke, that was amazing. Do something amazing for someone, oh, typical woman, okay? We never use that in the phrase in the positive. Typical, stereotypicality is always used in the negative, that's a problem. Here's the second one, stereotypes are often mostly, <laughs> often mostly, that's almost sound like almost certainly, uh, stereotypes are usually unattainable for the everyday Joe. That is, sorry fellas, it's not possible for you to simultaneously be The Rock, Jocko Rilling, Joe Rogan and the Marlboro Cowboy all at the same time. You're lucky to be wearing pants in church this morning. <laughs> Stereotypes are unattainable for the everyday Joe and that creates a problem. Chasing something you can never have. They're a mirage in the desert. In fact, when I was an adolescentologist working in high schools, what we found with both young males and young females of below teenage years is that one of the primary causes of self-harm was stereotypes from glossy media about what a real man is and what a real woman is and their inability to live up to it of, of, a, of an 11-year-old girl to look like Pamela Anderson. It's not going to happen without surgery. Or anaphylaxis. So what does she do? She self-harms in self-loathing because the stereotype is something she can never attain to. Girls, you know what I'm talking about. And men, we have it in our culture as well. Carrying shame, carrying failure, carrying self-loathing, carrying condemnation, trying too hard, spending too much, doing all sorts of things, ultimately to chase something that is not real and that is innately negative and damaging. That's what a stereotype is. Furthermore, when people strive for stereotypes, they often engage in destructive behaviours. It is not usual for people striving for a stereotype to do things in a healthy manner. They often become destructive. Fourthly, stereotypes have a self-defeating power. They are accusatory. Because of your failure to live up to it, the stereotype mocks and jeers at you and becomes a source of negative emotion. And fifthly, stereotypes are usually considered oppressive because they are insulting to the people on the receiving end who wants to be a stereotype. If I say to you, you're such a stereotype, is that a positive thing? It's not. Stereotype. And stereotypes are a mistaken way that we tap into hardwiring and blueprints blueprints for things in any area of life. That is when Dr. Moore says that inside each man is a hardware and a blueprint for strong, mature masculinity. Oftentimes what we've got to do is to get to that thing, we've got to cut through the stereotype first. And most of the times when we think we're doing that, what we're really doing is playing at the shallow edges of a stereotype. But the Bible calls us and culture calls us and offers us something different. What it offers us rather than a stereotype is this other thing, an archetype. An archetype is the original pattern or model on which anything of the same type is now based. An archetype. An archetype is a primordial, primeval, a primary image of something and everything that comes after it is supposed to correspond to some of the things in that type. That's different from a stereotype. It is an archetype. It is the first thing. It is the first mention. It is the first image and everything that comes after it should correspond to it even though it might be different in some ways. Now, Scripture offers, operates in many different ways, but one of the ways that Scripture operates is Scripture operates at the level of archetype for us. And this is how. 
Scripture shapes us by telling us narratives, by giving us stories about God's people, but at a level that functions as something so much more than simply history. If it was only history, the value we get from it is this is what happened. But the point of Scripture is to give us something more than history, not less than history, but something more than history. That is, why is the history there? The history is there so that we would be shaped by it. We get the narrative about what happens so that we can see with different eyes when we look at what happens. Now, that's the thing about the Bible. The Bible tells you what happened so that you look with different eyes at what happens now. And you make wise decisions about what happens now. Next, and you ask yourself cautious questions about what's happening now. What happened is there to shape us and to train us in what happened. And this is crucial for us because we need to learn these lessons so that we can proceed cautiously. Let me say something else to you. Scripture gives us, for men, archetypes, patterns, original blueprints for manhood, for masculinity. And that tells us in the face of the stories of the men of Scripture so that we can understand what happens now by looking at what happened then. And by the way, Scripture gives us all sorts of things from the archetypal world, sometimes things to live up to. Sometimes things we'll find out we've lived down to. Sometimes people embody an archetype well. Sometimes people embody the shadow and the broken, fractured image of an archetype. That is, they make a dog's breakfast of it. And we get all of those stories in Scripture and very little commentary on some of that stuff. We just get the story and the silence to make us reflect wisely on it. It Tells us what happened so that we can ask ourselves big questions about what happens next. Scripture gives us archetypes. It gives us the faces of a man so that A, we might be shaped with them. B, we could cultivate man psychology. C, learn the lessons from boy psychology, then put it away. It's important, C, that, 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 that boys are allowed to develop as boys that they should be. Adult Children should not be exposed to adult expectation and emotion and experience. They should be allowed to be kids. I'm not saying boys will be boys. I'm saying there's a purpose for childhood. There's a purpose for pre-adolescence. And all of that is important, whether you've got sons or daughters, that letting them grow and flourish involves them achieving certain developmental tasks in life stages. And that's what childhood is, is it is the lengthy process of achieving developmental tasks and milestones, mentally, spiritually, and obviously physically. But then we eventually put away boyness and live into manness, if you like. Because we're called to become the wise man that rules and reigns in God's image. And so here are the barriers to man psychology. First of all, remaining stuck in a boy stage. Secondly, failure to make becoming a man an ongoing enterprise and life pursuit. That is, some people just think because you've you know, been born with certain chromosomes and certain genitalia, that makes you a man. No, that makes you a male. Pursuit, a lifetime of ongoing pursuit makes you a man. And a man has forceful energies and one of the barriers to man psychology is dealing with those forceful energies. That is, denial or neglect of those very forceful energies inside you as a man will be your downfall. Allowing our shadow to live in ascendancy. Every image of man has an opposite, deep, murky shadow. Beneath our lives is brokenness and all sorts of ungodliness, isn't there? Well, admitting that's really important. And then not allowing my life to be governed by the ascendancy of the shadow, but actually always putting the shadow in the grave and letting what's truly supposed to live, live. Another barrier, lack of sufficient practice, living into the wise man 
That is, it's, it's, it's a quiet habit. Just like anything that you grow in, it's an acquired habit. You've got to try it often enough so it becomes second nature. But for many of us, we have challenges in this area. Well, to help us, Scripture gives us archetypes for all sorts of things in life. Girls, you have your own stuff from Scripture. We might talk about it one day. But today, I want to talk to you about the four faces of the wise man. The four faces of the wise man. Scripture gives us four archetypes, four faces, four images, and says that this is what a wise man is. Not one of those things. Four of those things. There are four natures, four faces to a wise man in Scripture. Our team are going to give you this card. This is a postcard. On the back, it has an explanation. On the front, it has each one of those four faces. And I wonder if our hope team would start moving through the building. I want every man in this room to take one. But girls, you're welcome to have one as well. Maybe you'd like to give it to someone who's not here. Man, I want you to take this because I want you to meditate and think about it. There's some stuff that I can't possibly cover all of in today's message. On the front of this card are the four faces of the wise man, the king, the warrior, the seer, and the lover. The four faces of the wise man. On the back of that card is an explanation, an articulation of each one of those faces and what the very best in those archetypes are. Adam was the first man and the first man called actually to live into each one of those four faces. Adam was supposed to be a king who ruled and reigned. He was supposed to be a warrior that protected and served the garden. He was supposed to be a seer that loved and lived in the image of God. And he was supposed to be a lover that both bonded with Eve and then caused the world to flourish under his care. Adam was the first man called to be king, warrior, seer, and lover. Every other man we meet in Scripture will do this positively or negatively, but will offer us point of reflection on how we're going as these narratives hold up the mirror to us. How am I going as a king? How am I going as a warrior? How am I going as a seer? How am I going as a lover? Well, let's have a look at it. They're up on the screen for you. The king is that which is called to be a life giver, the bringer of order who conquers chaos, the one who rules and reigns, the one who blesses others. See, that's a key uh, ingredient for the nature of the king as an archetyping scripture. The king in scripture is the one who blesses others, not the one who uses power for self. The king embodies fatherliness. The king actually embodies the father. The best image of a, of, a, of a proper father that comes from scripture is the way a good king rules and reigns justly and wisely and causes a kingdom to flourish. The warrior. The warrior is a conqueror. It's that inner thing. It's why you have testosterone and aggression and muscles and want to dream about slaying dragons. The warrior. In Scripture, the warrior is the one who protects and serves and fights for the right cause and harnesses aggression builds a band of brothers, brings justice, slays giants that would eat you and conquers fears. It's the warrior. It's the warrior inside a man. A man is, has this wired into his being. You know, they've studied these four archetypes across all cultures, not just scripture, and found that there's four of them that come from every single culture in the world, from 500 years ago, 5,000 years ago, or today. Every culture has these same four archetypes. And scripture gives them to us in spades. The seer is the flame of God. The seer is the one, the seeker of mystery, the one who plumbs the depths of the divine, the one who pursues knowledge and pursues deep knowledge. If you're an architect in the place, you know, you're probably tapping into your inner seer. If you're an engineer, you're tapping into your inner seer. How does things work? I went to uni, I acquired secret knowledge on how to build bridges. The seer speaks truth. 
plumbs the depths of the universe, perceives new ways forward, is able to be creative, calls out injustice and guides others. Remember Martin Luther King, I have a dream. That's his inner seer, dreaming a new way for a society to move ahead. A seer is spiritually aware. A seer is the best translation for what you see in the Hebrew Bible as the word prophet. In the New Testament, the word prophet means a forth teller. I'm speaking words on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, the seer, the word nabi, it means seer, someone who's in touch with the divine. It's so much more than just prophesying. There's all sorts of other things in there. The nature of the seer, you're wired to be the flame of God and spiritually alive. And here's one that's often muted in modern culture other than talking about pornography and sexuality. Although they are not the root of the archetype, they are only the fruit of the archetype. And that's the lover. The lover is the man whose heart is on fire, fully awake to life and love, lives deeply, pours into others, is passionate, is creative, is enthusiastic, connects to others. All of this is what Scripture shows us. A man fully alive, his heart is on fire and he lives deeply. And we meet all the way through Scripture men who live into or fracture this archetype, the king, the seer, the warrior, and the lover. Men, how many of you are tapping into all of those archetypical ways of channeling your energy, channeling your personality? Now, that's the thing is they're not personality types. It's not saying which one are you. In fact, to be a true, healthy, wise man, the wise man understands that I'm not just one of those things and not one of them outshines or is more important than the other. Actually, the true wise man is where the king, the warrior, the seer and the lover coalesce under your executive function. That is where the wise man is the chairman of his own board. His board table in his mind is made up of an inner king, an inner warrior, an inner seer and an inner lover. But the wise man is the chairman of the board. That is, he's got everyone else under control. And of course, tragedy is afoot in Scripture whenever one of these masculine energies is allowed to come to the fore at the expense of the others. Adam was called to be the first one that gives us the archetype of this behaviour. By the way, I've got a problem. Here's my problem. This material um, is actually part of men's therapeutic material that I've written that uh, gets taught on for 26 hours. It's 26 one-hour sessions. So what I'm giving you is I'm giving you 26 one-hour sessions in 40 minutes. Is that okay? I've got about 20 seconds left, apparently, according to the countdown timer. So I cannot say everything about this today, but what I want you to do is take this away and reflect on it. And women, why we need you to be part of this conversation is because we need you to fan into flame, to to let iron sharpen iron and call out and encourage and give life to and articulation to men in your lives and call out their inner king and call out their inner warrior and their inner seer and their inner lover. And they need your help and we need to help each other do it, fellas. We're called to, to help each other in this. Now we have a problem. And the problem is that like there are four faces of the male, these four archetypes that scripture gives us, anything that doesn't talk of the king, the warrior, the seer and the lover when talking about men from scripture is a stereotype, not an archetype. Here's one. I'm called to be a king and a priest. Well, you are called to be a king. But did you realize that a priest is also the other place in scripture where all four of these archetypes overlap? That's why the priest wears a crown, the priest wears a sword, the priest wears body armor, and the priest is called to love God and love others. The priest is actually a stereotypical king, warrior, seer, and lover. Sorry, an archetypical king, warrior, seer, and lover in the temple, supposed to be like the new Adam living out everything God has called as an example to a man. 
So you're not called to be a king and a priest. You're called to be a king and a warrior and a seer and a lover. And if you were being a priest, you would be cultivating all four faces. Like Adam was called to, but made a dog's breakfast of. There's two other characters in Scripture that live into these four faces. One not so well, one perfectly. Their names are David and Jesus. Now, we have a problem, and the David stories help us with this problem, articulate it and expose it and diagnose it for what it is. And that is that just like there's four faces, every one of those faces has something else underneath it. It has a shadow. And every man, every woman, every child in this room, you and I, we also have shadows. There's archetypes and calling and things we're supposed to live into, but there are shadows in our lives where beneath the exterior, below the waterline, there's some real murky stuff swimming around. And what happens for many of us is many of us will live into pathologies and weakness and fractures and brokenness and will damage our lives, damage our communities, damage our families, damage ourselves and damage our relationships by letting that shadow rise up and be the thing that drives our behaviour. And you see this in Scripture because David, as a man called to live as a wise man, God's, God's, God's first ever perfect king. You are a man after my own heart. In fact, Jesus will be the son of David. David, you're supposed to be the precursor to the Messiah, the priest king, the, the warrior, the king, the seer and the lover, all in one person. And David was all those things, but not always perfectly, was he? And if you know the story, and if you don't know the story, go away and reflect on it. Take this card and have a look at it, how it works. These stories shape us in this face. And Jesus comes and lives perfectly into and shows us this is what a human being fully alive looks like. And he calls us to it. I've come that they would have life and have it all around, have it abundantly, that you would live fully into everything that God has for you. David embodies for us not just a king and a warrior and a seer and a lover, although sometimes he does that well. Many times he shows us what these four faces look like when they're fractured. What these four faces of a man look like when they're broken, the shadows of a man, the substandard expressions that inside us is a king, but there's also a broken king. Inside us is a warrior, but there's also a broken warrior. Inside us is a seer, but it's a broken seer. And inside us is a lover, but man, it's capable of great fracture, wouldn't you say? We've got to learn. And to make our lives harder, it's not just that we have all these things inside us, but deep down inside us, truly, there's still something wrestling. And that is inside each and every one of us as an immature child, isn't there? Who's ever been told by someone, grow up? Okay, what happened? My inner boy, or if you're a female in the place, your inner little girl, what happened? That thing of us that isn't quite yet grown up, that thing of us that hasn't quite detached and put behind us childish things, reared its head a little bit and someone noticed and they, boom, whacked it down like a game of whack-a-mole. There's a, there's, a, there's a little boy inside of us. And actually, the developmental tasks of the little boy are supposed to prepare me for the life of the grown-up man. Boy psychology is supposed to yield and grow healthily into man psychology. And so inside a boy is this thing. There's a little king. There's a little, a little warrior. And that little warrior reflects as a hero. That's why little boys love putting on the Batman outfit and putting on their Superman cape. And hey, we all love wearing our undies on the outside because there's a, there's a little hero inside of us that wants to slay dragons and jump off things and pretend we could fly. And our lives are wrapped up. This little hero, which is a sign pointer, is supposed to have life breathed into it and maturity come to it so they don't just stay a, a, a little boy dressed as Batman my whole life, but I grow into a warrior. There's a little king. There's a little hero. There's a, there, there's a little seer. A little seer in the life of a child reflects as a seeker of mysteries. And that is why little boys, and often, again, we're talking about boys, but you could say the same for little girls. That's why they do stuff. They have an incessant hunger for learn. You know, when they go to school and they come home, you can't tell them anything now because that's not what Mrs. Smith said. 
and they take apart the TV or they reverse engineer their pocket watch or, or they dissect a cane toad or turn, turn a cat inside out. What is it? That's the little seer, the seeker of mysteries, wanting clarity, always asking questions. Why, Dad? Why, Dad? Why, Dad? How many people know sometimes you need to give the little seer a curfew? No more questions after 9pm. Go to bed. Let us go to bed. The little seer, the little mystery seeker they are. And inside every little man is a little lover, a little lover. And it's to be cultivated. The little lover is cultivated, first of all, by early caregivers. He learns to give mummy flowers and he dreams, one day I'm going to marry you, mum, or his cousin or his sister. Things that you'd be horrified if he said when he's 20, but it's cute when he's five. And he draws pictures and he learns creativity and he learns to appreciate the difference between a balanced vase of flowers, nice fabrics that match together. Um, wow, what else is about the little lover? You know, um, word count and sharing and expression of feelings. Many things that we would say, because stereotypically they're the womanly things. But actually, try to live as a man fully alive when you can't fully feel and you can't fully love and you can't fully connect with others. So the little lover, the little lover has to be cultivated and trained. But the point is, we can't live our whole lives staying as a little king, a little hero, a little mystery seeker and a little lover. They've got to give way. Now, here's a problem some of us are going to get stuck in. That just like man psychology, boy psychology has broken faces. Broken faces. Each one of those little images can be broken. And we see it all the time. The, 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 the little king can be fractured, the little hero can be fractured, the little seer and the little lover can all be fractured and live out. So let us remind ourselves of what our journey is. Our journey is that I've got to go on the journey from being a boy to growing into a man. And then as I grow into a man, I've got to grow into a wise man who has my four faces healthy and whole and balanced and unified. And that's what the journey of the wise man is. The journey of balancing and healthily living into the four faces of a man. And you see this in the life of David. You see it in the life of David. You see it in his successes when he does it well. And why he does it well is because he's living into the wise man. And when he fails dramatically, which he does many times, and he fails and he stands in as a story for us, a cipher for us, because he represents all of our failures as well. We see ourselves in the story. But have a look at David. Have a look at how David lives into his wise man. As the king, as the life giver, he consolidates Israel and sets up the golden era, man. He does all sorts of amazing things, but he set Israel up and with his son Solomon. He set Israel up for an absolute golden era. All of his good points are because he lived into that inner king. Have a look at it as him, David the warrior. He slays Goliath. He overcomes the Philistine invaders. He builds a band of brothers in the cave of Adullam. David was this, this warrior. He was the, not just a king, but he was also a warrior, a man who could swing the sling, a man who could learn to fight the lion and the bear. Even in obscurity, he learned to cultivate his inner warrior so that when Goliath had all of Israel carrying, he was the one that could stand. What a great story. David the warrior. David was a seer. He dances before the Lord with all his might. He meets with God in the desert. From him, we get prayer and music and meditation in the Psalms. The whole hymn book of Israel began from the school of David. And he writes Psalms and poetry that are prophetic and reveal Christ to us and all sorts of things. He writes prophecy and hymns. He seeks to build God's house with his son Solomon. He loves God. He delves deeply into the divine. And then he does what a seer has to do to be a fully grown seer. He guides others on the journey. Every time we open the book of Psalms, every time we open Samuel or Chronicles, David guides us today. He was a seer. He stood in for a seer. What a great life. But of course, every face has a shadow. And inside every man 
is a shadow seeking to rise up. So when a king's shadow is broken, it'll reflect as a weakling, passive, or a tyrant, active. And we see all the way through scripture, men living into an archetype of a broken king, either living out the journey of a tyrant like Herod and Caesar and Pharaoh, and even at times King David, the tyrant, using my power not to bless others and for generative activity, but actually using my power for self-gain, using my power to propagate my own desires and appetites. It's the game of the tyrant. Also, we see weakling kings in Scripture. Ahab, emasculated by Jezebel as she ravages the nation, tied to his mummy's apron strings. This time it's not his mummy, it's Jezebel who stands in for it. Or King Saul, the weakling, driven mad by his impotent power and the fact that God had said, you can no longer be the king of Israel trying to murder David. What is it? That inner weakling acting out against the one that God had called. But in David's life story, we see David himself live between the oscillate, between the shadow of a broken king where he lives as a tyrant and he lives as a weakling. Remember when David took Bathsheba and then uses his power abusively to have her husband murdered and take her as his wife? That's an abusive, that's David the tyrant. David, the shadow of David comes to the fore. David the weakling not able to face the music, not able to face up to it. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to manipulate behind the scenes and have Uriah, who slept in his own doorway to protect the king's life, sent to the front lines of battle and killed so that David didn't actively have to. David the weakling, his shadow came to the fore. Maybe that's because inside every boy, there's a shadow broken little king too. We're not a tyrant, we're a high chair tyrant. Some of us haven't grown beyond that phrase sitting in the high chair and mummy gives me peas and I don't want peas, slap. And I throw my drink bottle and I'm having a little tanty as I'm stuck in my high chair. And mummy comes up and says, oh, there, there, Benny. No, mummy, no. See, I'm a high chair tyrant. I want the world my way. I want the lap of luxury. I want everybody doing what I want. And I'll scream and throw and stomp my feet if I don't get what I want. See, inside every little king is a high chair tyrant. And inside every little king is a weakling prince. Carry me around on a pillow. Do everything for me. Don't ask me for anyone. Don't expect me to take responsibility. Don't ask me to do jobs. The weakling prince, I need to be mollycoddled and carried by others through life. See, the shadow of the king in a boy and in a man reflects in so many of our negative behaviours and you see it in the life of David. David was called to be a warrior, but he lived, his shadow came out and we see it all the way through scriptures. In the stories of men, when the shadow rises up, the shadow broken form of a warrior is the bully and the coward. And we've touched on it already, but so many times there is this strength and this dominance in a man, which stereotypically is, of course, he's like that. He's a typical male. Friends, that's not the archetype of masculinity that Scripture calls us into. A bully? If we're a bully, that's our shadow. That's fractured. If we're a coward, that's our shadow. That's fractured masculinity. The, the bully is represented best in Goliath, but also in Saul and even in David, where each of them uses their kingly power to domineer and dominate others and have their way. And inside each one of us is, is a fractured, broken, broken warrior that really is supposed to exist to, 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 to protect and serve others and live into and love them and slay the giant. But instead, we find ourselves behaving like Goliath or David or Saul, and you see it in the narrative of Bathsheba, David behaves like the bully, the 10 spies in Israel refusing to enter the promised land. Why? Because we can't go in there. There's giants there. We are like grasshoppers in our own sight. The inner coward won't look beyond the abyss, won't unpack what's really going on because he is a grasshopper in his own sight, a vulnerable, scared 
coward. We've all got it in us, friends. We've all got it in us. And Scripture calls us to something higher. You know, perhaps it's because inside every warrior is a little hero. And that little hero, when it's broken, has a shadow. And that shadow is the grandstanding bully. So shattering that I've spelt it wrong up on the board. The grandstanding bully showing off, trying to belittle others, trying to put others down. Look how good I am. Let Let me highlight your weaknesses. I'm better than you are. It's it's the little hero, but the little hero that doesn't know how to channel strength. The little hero is the grandstander and the bully. And the passive shadow, the little coward. I won't confront things. I'm too scared to do it. Why should I go to school on my first day? Why should I embrace a challenge? Why should I learn this or learn it? See, we have an innumerable amount of things we will justify in our own minds hiding from, friends. You know when we do that, what it is? That's a little boy Benny, not giving way to grown up man Benny. That's a broken little hero being a coward. But what I really need to do is learn how do I live into the warrior that conquers fear. It's a challenge. The broken seer, David represents the broken seer through the two shadow behaviours that you see in all the literature about the broken inner seer. And that is the manipulator or the pretender. You see them through other characters in Scripture. The pretender is the one who feigns innocence. What? I didn't do anything. I don't even know what you're talking about. Deep down, they know. They're a solver of mysteries. They're a seeker of mysteries. So they're curious and they understand what's really going on, but they pretend they do not. You see it in the life of Jonah, who hides from God out in the desert and says, God, I'm so upset. I want to die. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were gracious. And I tried to run away. And I tried to pretend you weren't calling me. And I tried to pretend you didn't have this plan. I tried to pretend I didn't know because I didn't want the Ninevites to get your blessing. And I hid off in the desert pretending and God calls him out on his pretense. (laughs) You see it in David because when David, in his epic failure where he embodies every shadow, takes Bathsheba and murders her husband and lives with her, another seer, the prophet Nathan, comes to him and calls him out on his behaviour. And he has a dialogue. And David, knowing full well what his shadow has done, knowing full well what he is guilty of, feigns innocence and pretends the whole time he's fine. Who could do such a thing? He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan cuts through it and says, you are that man. That's us, friends. In, in, at every layer of our lives, at any time, our inner pretender can come out. Pretending like we're something we're not. Pretending, feigning innocence. Pretending we don't know what you're talking about. What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. And the active version is the detached manipulator. You see it in Balaam who took money to curse Israel. You see it in David, the manipulator, in all the machinations with Uriah and Bathsheba, pulling the strings, playing his chess game. Never thought, no empathy, no connection, no consideration. What does this do to the people around me? That's the shadow of the seer, the broken shadow, the detached manipulator. I'm not feeling anything for the games that I am playing. Some of us need to be frank with ourselves. And maybe it's because inside of us is a little seer that's never grown up. The little seer is the the trickster and the one who plays dumb, the one who's always playing pranks. In all of the literature, Loki from uh, obviously the Marvel movies, but before that he was famous too. The trickster, the one who pretends he's innocent, doesn't know what's going on, but is always acting unpredictably and manipulating behind the scenes. The broken seer reflects as a know-it-all. Nah, 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 nah. I know better than you do. It's little boy behaviour. It's the broken seer, the one who is supposed to plumb the mysteries of the universe, but now just uses it to bolster his vulnerable self-esteem. 
And there's the shadow of the lover. The shadow of the lover is in its active manifestation, the addicted lover. By the way, it's not just talking about pornography and all those things, although it includes that. You see, why it includes that is because of what the addicted lover really is. The addicted lover, there's the shadow of the heart on fire in a broken heart, in a fractured image. The shadow rises up and says, overcome, I'm going to be overcome by my appetites. Instead of controlling them, I'm going to let them control me. Man, that's a shadow that has to be dealt with. And you see it in the life of Samson because Samson's single biggest vulnerability was that he only ever did what was right in his own eyes. And at the end, his eyes are plucked out. The shadow will cost you your capacity to see. That's what we learn from Samson. We learn it from the story of Solomon. Solomon who learnt his shadow. It was passed on from his daddy. And David who took Bathsheba and others becomes a Solomon with 300 wives and 700 concubines. Eventually went mad and died insane. Why? Because Solomon's addicted lover, his shadow rose up and was allowed to rule his life. The broken expression of the heart on fire, the broken expression of the lover. And there's also the impotent lover. And this is so much more than just, do you need to pop a Viagra or do you, do you need to see someone about the plumbing? This is actually a man who lacks strength and resolve, a man who lacks initiative, a man who is passive in the pursuit of the cultivation of a life where your heart is on fire. It's not just talking about sexuality, but it can be reflected there. A man who won't pursue a family, of course, because you're an impotent lover. A man who won't pursue his children, of course, because you're an impotent lover. Um, a, a man who won't cultivate his deep passions, you're an impotent lover. A man who won't fan into flame every gift and skill God has put in there so you could pour into others, you're an impotent lover. That's why you're lacking strength, lacking resolve, lacking initiative. Did you realise that that passivity is a broken and fractured shadow of something you're truly called to be, which is you're called to live with a heart on fire, loving and drinking deeply of life, connecting to others, building community. A man who isolates himself, listen, that's impotence. Often men are afraid to confront their fears, fears that come up when they're surrounded by other healthy men. So they isolate themselves and stay away. You heard the phrase, right? Birds of a feather flock together. All the impotent ones eventually find each other out in the car park. We're called to be men who live with hearts on fire. Maybe our fractured shadow emerges because the little lover in us has never grown up. And in scripture and in all the literature, you see the broken heart of the little lover represented by the mummy's boy or the dreamer. The mummy's boy, of course, mum will be the first one he connects to. And if it's not her, it might be Mrs. Smith or a sister or a cousin or, or someone else that stands in for that. And if he's not careful, he'll spend the rest of his life needing Elaine to come and mummy him, needing, need, need, needing the women of friends to come and knock on the door and solve your problems for you, need, you needing mummy's apron strings, needing, needing her to take the initiative. Mummy's boy, not strong, not leading, not, not domineering or bullying. Devoured and overcome by some invisible mummy figure. And for that man, man or woman, every relationship he seeks, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? You know, in family counselling, women are infuriated by a broken-hearted little lover, a man, a boy who's never grown up into a man that expects her to be his mum quick tip for the men is it also makes them feel completely asexual towards you by the way the mummy's boy 
That's the active. On the, on the passive side, he's just a dreamer. His header in the clouds. He's not going anywhere. He's not really pursuing anything. His header in the clouds. He's full of quotes and hot air, but nothing ever gets done. The dreamer. Oh, I'm gonna, one day I'll do this and every week it's a new plan. Every week I'm gonna and every week I wanna. Nothing ever happens. It's just smoke and mirrors and hot air. The, the dreamer. The dreamer builds resentment in others because rather than do what a heart on fire is supposed to do, love and connect, build community and pour into others, what the dreamer does is the dreamer just tells you what, how great they're going to be one day. In Scripture, the, the dreamer shadow is what got Joseph thrown into the well by his brothers. You're all going to bow down to me one day. I'm better. The dreamer. The broken shadow of the little boy. But we're called friends the purpose of today's message has not been to beat you up. The purpose of today's message has to been to give you a full macro zoom out of what the calling of a man is in the collective pages of the wisdom of Scripture. Scripture seeks to blow on the coals of your heart and say, hey, come on. Let the king out. Rouse the warrior within you. Fan into flame the seer and stir the lover. Live into, be, be, be a wise man, cultivate, chair the board of these four faces. Never let one take over. They're supposed to be lived in balance. I was with my kids recently at a sushi restaurant and someone came in and tried to bash up the restaurant owner. And so little old me, I was wearing my pink flamingo shirt and I had to go and intervene and say, hey, hey, we're not doing that right now. My kids are standing right there. And then the guy turns on me and wants to fight me. See, in that moment, now I have a balancing act. Because my inner warrior can easily rise up. Well, I'll just thump him, then fine. You want to fight me? But see, the warrior has to be balanced by the king and the lover and the seer. Hang on, what opportunity is God giving me here? Hang on a minute. How do I love and pour into and build community even in this moment where my inner warrior wants to intervene and do justice? But is it justice if I punch this drunk guy in the face? No. So what happens? The wise man has to calm all of the influences and harmonize them. Say, okay, we won't be having a fight today, mate. It's challenging every setting for each of us to say, is the wise man ruling? Or have I let one of these faces take over? And in which case, when I let one of these faces take over, it doesn't take too long before the shadow is now in control. My man shadow, my boy shadow. Who, who said it was challenging being a bloke? Because <laughs> you have your version of this. One day we'll talk about it maybe. Um, this is what we need to do, people of God. We need to encourage each other. I hope men, women, go take one of these and give them to the blokes in your life. If you're interested, stick it up somewhere. But men, hold this on, hold on to this and use it as a tool. Stick it on your wall somewhere. Pop it in your Bible. Pop it in your journal. Look at it every day. Stick it on your mirror and say, which of the four faces right now in this moment have I let drop? I need to cultivate that one. Which of the four faces have I let take over? I, I need to restrain that one a little bit. Which of the broken shadows seems to be rising up? Oh, that was a bit high chair, Benny, then. I shouldn't have done that. Now I'm going to have to go apologise to Danielle. She wants it in writing. Oh, that's a broken lover. When I turn to that stuff, that's my broken lover. I've got to live as a man with heart on fire, fully alive. For the last few weeks, you know what I've been doing? At the end of every day, I've been using this tool and saying, what did I do today that reflected the king that I did well? And I say, good boy, Benny. And I say, oh, and what about my warrior, my seer and my lover? What did I do that was wise? Okay, okay, good. 
Which one did I allow to take over too much? Okay, I've got to do better tomorrow, man. How, how did my shadow, where did I give flight to my shadow today? Oh, I was a bit domineering in that conversation. I didn't, I, someone challenged me and I did not respond well to that. Yeah, I, someone hurt my feelings and the lover in me was wounded. So what did I do? Then I turned on them to aggressively see that's the broken lover. I've been using this and it's a challenge, but I think I'm growing. I want to invite you men. Let's grow, hey? Let's encourage you. In this church, in this community, let's build a community where we breathe oxygen into the four faces of the wise man. Pastor Dave is our men's pastor. It would be great to see a movement of men living into our four archetypes of manhood, not the stereotypes. Women, what you can do is encourage the men in your life and speak into and breathe oxygen into their inner king and their inner warrior and their inner lover. Maybe help us gently realise when we're just being a high chair tyrant. And the way you help us realise that is not by going, there you go, see, just what Pastor Ben said, you've been a high chair tyrant. That's probably not helpful. Be tactful. Be a seer, be a lover. But help us. Let's help each other. Let's help each other heal. Amen? Let's help each other grow. Let's help each other live into everything God has for us. See, when we live into those four faces, we get beyond stereotypes and we become human beings fully alive. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room? We need to finish, so I'm going to finish just by praying, praying for you. Thanks for joining us in church. So great that you did on this Father's Day today. I pray for you under the sound of my voice, man and woman and child. Maybe something I've said has annoyed you. Maybe it's got under your grill. Maybe you've taken it as a slap or rebuke. Maybe it's wounded you. Maybe it's rubbed some salt into the room. I pray for you in that spot, friend. I pray you'd be open to God's grace. Pray you'd be open to correction. Pray you'd be open to word of wisdom from Scripture. Pray that you'd cultivate the wise man and deal well with that wound. Pray for God's healing. I pray for the oil of the Holy Spirit to saturate that place inside you. I pray that as you read Scripture, you would see the things it's attempting to call out in you, to build up in you leading you to Jesus, the perfect man, leading you to Jesus who embodies every one of those faces and then calls you and says, walk with me and live into it as well. Pray where there are challenges that you just turn around. Hey God, I repent. I'm I'm changing my mind. I'm changing that behavior. I'm going to live into what you've got for me. I pray where there's pain, you would invite God's healing in. I pray where you're cold, you would ask God, set my heart on fire. Well, you know your shadow has been rising up. I pray for strength for God to help you put that back in the grave and let your true face rise. I pray for you, friend. I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ for His goodness and His grace upon you and your life, in your work, in your rest, in your play, the goodness of God all over you, friend. And I pray for our church. It would be a place where humans could live fully alive in God's Word together, in Jesus' name. And everybody said...